so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, once again, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Let's talk about money. I picked that topic specifically because I figured let's what's something that everybody at least has has some kind of a take on or some kind of a feel for or maybe just appreciates. I appreciate money. Do you like money? We all like money. Show of hands. Who would want money if somebody was offering, all right? Was it dirty money? Okay, let's just settle with money. I came across a fascinating article recently by Joaquin Book, who writes for the American Institute for Economic Research. The title was what grabbed me because it said, How Societies Save for an Uncertain Future. I don't know if you have thought much about this, but... There, there are things we take for granted when it comes to money, right? You, you look at those uh, those bills in your wallet. Yes, it's okay to feel a sense of pride. That represents, you know, stored value. That represents, you know, hard work. You can go and exchange those colored pieces of paper and get things that you actually need. A loaf of bread, a gallon of gas. Okay, you'll need a few more pieces of that uh, colored paper to get that, but you get the picture. And it becomes so ingrained. In fact, in some ways, we're, we're almost disconnected from it. There's something that happens, I think Dave uh, Ramsey points out, when you pay your bills in cash, when you count out, all right, that's 51, 52, $53, you know, for whatever, you feel every dollar that you spend. On the other hand, if you are, you know, swiping a card, some people just, you know, tip their phone, Bloop, there it is, it's done, it's paid for. You don't really have that sense if you've parted with something. Yeah, 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 somewhere the notation was made on a ledger and, you know, some digits changed, this many electrons, you know, indicated over here that uh, they should show up in this account now. All right, that's all fine and dandy. But it's kind of fun to go back and really talk about what money is, what it represents. And for that matter, how do you know that what you call money today is still going to be seen as money tomorrow? Now, this is not to get you scared about economic collapse, but let's... Let's at least start with admitting the, the the situation economically, not just in America, but worldwide, is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's, it's not sustainable. There's so much spending, so much borrowing going on. There's going to come a point where they can't even keep up with the interest payments. What do you think that means? What have we seen in other countries, in other civilizations, when that happens? These are the kind of questions that people who want to be familiar with history ought to ask themselves. People who want to be self-sufficient ought to ask themselves. I mean, if you told uh, Germans back in the 1920s that uh, their uh, their marks would be worth nothing, 
If you had a wheelbarrow full of money, somebody would dump the money and steal the wheelbarrow. It at least had value. They were just pieces of paper at that point. And I know we think that could never happen. Everybody thinks that, right? Right until it does. Listen to what Joaquin Book has to say, though, about how societies save for an uncertain future. He references an article he wrote last week about how money is society's technology, by which he means it's the technology for moving value across time. Now, he says, without defining it more narrowly, which monetary economists do to their heart's content, money is the technology by which we arrange the division of labor. I do my thing, you do yours, and we trade the surplus production with one another. In his other article, he explains how this fundamental insight of human civilization doesn't require money. After all, we could trade in favors or promises to one another, but codifying those promises into a detached, separate item makes it easier to use them. And that's especially true if we're transacting with a society of strangers numbering in the millions. Zooming out across time, the problems you face when saving for your immediate or far-off future, well, that's a perennial problem that all human societies have faced. You're trying to figure out how to maintain yourself, survive, and even thrive when you're no longer young, fit, energetic, or smart enough to produce the value that previously sustained you. He says, we know that we will grow old, slowly and then suddenly. We know that we will go through rough patches of illness. We must save economic value for such rainy days. So crudely speaking, societies have three avenues. One is promises to deliver. Two is a standard where we issue, or where we trust rather, the issuer of worthless tokens. Number three is a real-world resource standard. Now, if we operated on an economy no more complicated than a hunter-gatherer tribe or subsistence, subsistence village, rather, a structure of promises and goods for goods works. We don't have money, stocks, real estate, or many durable commodities and would instead place our faith in the tribe's future ability to provide us with what we need. We bypass the issues of money and monetary regimes by producing, distributing, and consuming directly the goods and services that we require. Now, Joaquin Book says economists think that's efficient because you're maximally using all of the few resources you have access to. We're using mutual trust in one another, storing value intangibly in one another across time. If I kill a buffalo today, I share it with you, and the, the implicit exchange is that when I'm too old to kill one, or on days when I fail, I share in your successful kill. But he says, in societies bigger than Dunbar's number, That first way collapses. The story of human civilization thus has been a battle between the second and third ways, between centralized structures that controlled mandated money and structures using decentralized real-world resources for their monetary purposes. His point being the minute we no longer fully trust one another or can credibly commit or enforce deviations from such trust, those are the only two options available to solve society's value-transferring problem. Now, he says most of us have experience with central banks operating uh, paper currencies of of negligible non-monetary value and private banks issuing deposits on top of those currencies. Trusted users may, users rather, I'm sorry, let's try that again. Trusted issuers may operate tokens with no underlying use, but somebody somewhere must still determine how many there should be. 
and that impacts what their current and future worth is on the market, the purchasing power over time that is society's eternal planning problem. If the person running the printing presses misuse those presses, and in a world of infinite information, millions of transactions or trillions of transactions and billions of people's desires, how could they not? If that someone has goals different from ours, if she's, if she's any less benign than Mother Teresa, the issuance constitutes a residual risk for anyone using the tokens. What he's saying here is if your printer runs too fast, those tokens lose value. It's like watering down the Kool-Aid. If it runs too slowly, acquiring money means giving up more of your production just to fit through the money pipes. This is money as either a Ponzi or pyramid scheme. Now, approach number three uses tokens that have some alternative use or intrinsic value in economist speak. The material of which we are then wasting in token passing rather than making other things with them. And that's the domain of commodity monies. This is where copper, silver, or gold have a place. Adam Smith's famous analogy was with roads. They take up space that we could have used for farming, thus inefficient, yet they serve a valuable purpose in allowing us easier transport from here to there and from the past to the present. This is the real resource cost of commodity, money. It solves other problems as we don't need to trust the words of a stranger or the edicts of some faraway authority, but only the item presented to us. It's decentralized and operates offline. Still, it is information requiring as it sometimes takes effort to figure out if it's it's real gold, for instance, and it takes up resources that could have been used for other industrial purposes. But he says the virtue of that third approach lies in its decentralized nature and fairly anonymized use. I don't need to know who I'm transacting with. I don't need to involve a bank or payment processor to double-check that my customer's good for the money, all of which leaves electronic tracks. All I need is to make sure the payment items I'm receiving are proper. The drawback is that it almost only works in spot markets. Anytime you want to transact from afar or temporarily separate delivery from payment, and it works, uh, number three, he says, works very poorly for moving value. Now this brings us to cryptocurrency, and he says Bitcoin is a strange mix of approach number two as well as approach number three, which is an issue that's actually led to its classification problems. It uses real-world resources in the form of energy, however produced, and the proof of used energy then transfers into the digital domain where it overcomes the issue of trusting a centralized issuer. What Bitcoin, like community standards of the past, managed to do fairly well was to include a trusted issuance of tokens in digital and easily transferable versions, tied down and disciplined by the energy use required in three. So let's bring this home. What does that mean like for a retiree? This is, this is one that may cause a few little panic attacks depending on how prepared you are for retirement. Joaquin Book says what every person no longer, what, what every person no longer able to provide for him or herself faces is how to amass and how to transfer surplus value from when they could provide that value. In his previous article, he wrote that any system for transferring value to the future carries risk to somebody somewhere. It's just a matter of who ought to carry that uh, risk. Primitive societies achieve the transfer through individual risk-sharing agreement 
as well as strong generational ties that includes older and younger generations in the spoils of today's hunters. We don't know what tomorrow's hunters will bring home, better or worse game than today, but we share in their rewards nonetheless. We take upside and downside market risk as we don't know what we will get for our community savings, but only that we will receive a reasonable, socially agreed-upon share of the loot. Vaclav Smil, the distinguished energy theorist, writes in Grand Transitions, How the World Was Made, that in pre-modern societies, quote, in the absence of pensions and capital markets, children are an asset that can provide support in old age. Establishment of capital markets and pensions for urban workers reduces the need for bringing up more children. Now, Joaquin Book says, properly functioning financial markets replace family ties to future support with legal claims on an economy's underlying production, whether it's ownership in firms or debt claims on corporations and government. By owning it, effectively fronting a company's expenditures, you're entitled to a share of its proceeds. Value today can thus be outsourced to lots of others that transform it into market-tested value tomorrow. Still, you face market risk from the inherent uncertainties of the future. Large-scale welfare states like primitive societies provide livelihoods through generational promises, but as a centralized state, it takes value from its producing subjects and hands it over to its deserving subjects. So the state is theoretically infinitely lived or lived and can credibly enforce that generational agreement by repeatedly taking from those who produce to ensure that those who no longer can may still live. I guess we see that through Social Security, right? We don't know what the subject of tomorrow's state will bring home. And in addition to primitive societies, we can't be sure how generous or benign tomorrow's state will be with us. We're getting the market risks of primitive societies or capital markets wrapped around degrees, decrees rather, by whoever controls the democratically elected chamber of power. Now, primitive societies don't use money to move value through time, but future generations' hunting skills. Large-scale welfare states on fiat money, that would be situation number two. They don't actually use money to move value either. They rely on extracted bounties from its future subjects. As a retiree, you might get a share of that loot, but like before, that share is unspecified and what you get in real terms is unclear. It's just a promise. Now, a world based on Bitcoin doesn't, contrary to its proponents' rallying cry, Bitcoin fixes this. It doesn't fix it. Human beings that are born and die in the care of others with a critical in-between life where they create value are forever faced with this time-traveling problem. And he says, one way or another, we must tap into future society's ability to produce goods and services. By fixing the quantity portion of the equation, it allows you to immutably know how many sats you possess. The rest of your community has a hard time confiscating those from you. Still, you're left with market risk because you don't know how much groceries, healthcare services, or Netflix shows your stash will provide you with. Now, when gold bugs used to say, well, gold is immutable and will keep its value, they were banking on a future where gold still has value in the eyes of other people. For saving, for saving reasons like yours. For jewelry, for tooth filling, industrial or, or adornment use. Plausible, but again, not guaranteed. When Bitcoiners rant against the horrors of forcing people into investment vehicles that they're ill-equipped to manage or understand, 
they miss this fundamental aspect of our monetary economies. Risk does not disappear. Time traveling requires faith in someone or something. I like how he uses this example. If if you hold a full Bitcoin, you know you have at least one twenty-one millionth of the network's purchasing power. But it's a purchasing power that could be zero by the time you're retiring. By moving from empty promises to goods and services in our current regimes to cryptographically verified numbers in a Bitcoinized world, only the promises go away. The Bitcoin saved away today remains the same number of sats when used for retirement. But you don't ensure that those same number of sats will purchase the retiree, the goods and services equal to the savings they put in or can reasonably expect. So, it's not as splendid as its proponents pretend, but it's not as flawed as its critics think. Bitcoin certainly doesn't solve society's time-solving or time-traveling problem, but it does peel off one layer of uncertainty. You still carry real-world exchange rate risk, but abstract from much political risk. And this Joaquin book says is the problem that all societies have tried to overcome. Moving value through time and ensuring our individual livelihood when we're too old to produce the value that sustains us. He says, in a complicated, ever-changing world of fundamental or of uncertain, of certain uncertain technologies, rather politics and other people's shifting wants and desires, it's a fundamental problem that remains. So I don't think that we have just uh, in any way solved a problem for you here, but it's definitely an interesting slant and kind of an interesting way to look at. You know, if you're working for retirement, that's all you're doing right now. You're just trying to. You're, you're in the stage of life where you're able to create value. That money is a store of value. That retirement vehicle is a way that you're hoping to transport that value across time to the point where you will be living off that value upon reaching retirement. I don't know why, but I felt older. Or at least I recognized, whoa, <laughs> not getting any younger here. Probably should pay close attention. All right, one more quick story here I wanted to share with you. Um, I, I'm i an Apple fan. Yeah, I'm a fanboy. I drink the Apple Kool-Aid. I've got the MacBook Air. I've had an iPhone for many, many years. But I'm not really happy with what uh, Apple is doing right now. I mean, on the one hand, we all like to know someone out there is looking out for me, but someone is looking at us and not in a good way. And Edward Snowden is blowing the whistle on Apple, warning their customers that this all-seeing eye in your iPhone has just declared war on your privacy. In fact, your iPhone is about to become an hour phone, thanks to Apple. Here's what Edward Snowden says. He says, by now you've probably heard Apple plans to push a new and uniquely intrusive surveillance system out to many of the more than 1 billion iPhones it's sold which run all of the behemoth's proprietary take-it-or-leave-it software. And this new offensive is tentatively slated to begin with the launch of iOS 15, almost certainly in mid-September, with the devices of its U.S. Based, its US user base rather designated as the initial targets. Now, we're told that other countries will be spared, but not for long. You might have noticed that I haven't mentioned which problem it is that Apple is purporting to solve. Why? Well, Snowden says, because it doesn't matter. Having read thousands upon thousands of remarks on this growing scandal, he says it has become clear to me that many understand it doesn't matter, but few, if any, have been willing to actually say it. Speaking candidly, if that's still allowed, 
That's the way it always goes when someone of institutional significance launches a campaign to defend an indefensible intrusion into our private spaces. They make a mad dash to the supposed high ground from which they speak in low, solemn tones about their moral mission before fervently invoking the dread specter of the four horsemen of the infopocalypse, warning that only a dubious amulet or suspicious software update can save us from the most threatening members of our species. And suddenly everybody with a principled objection is forced to preface their concern with apologetic throat clearing and the establishment of bona fides. I lost a friend when the towers came down. However, as a parent, I understand this is a real problem. But, well, Edward Snowden says, as a parent, I'm here to tell you that sometimes it doesn't matter why the man in the handsome suit is doing something. What matters are the consequences. Apple's new system, regardless of how anyone tries to justify it, will permanently redefine what belongs to you and what belongs to them. How? Well, the task Apple intends is its its new uh, surveillance system to perform, preventing their cloud systems from being used to store digital contraband. In this case, unlawful images uploaded by their customers. Now, this is traditionally performed by searching their systems. While it's still problematic for anybody to search through a billion people's private files, the fact that they can only see files you gave them is a crucial limitation. But Edward Snowden says now that's all set to change. Under the new design, your phone will now perform these searches on Apple's behalf before your photographs have even reached their iCloud servers. And yada, 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 if enough forbidden content is discovered, law enforcement will be notified. Now, he says, I intentionally wave away the technical and procedural details of Apple's system here, some of which are quite clever because they, like our man in the handsome suit, merely distract from the most pressing fact, the fact that in just a few weeks, Apple plans to erase the boundary dividing which devices work for you and which devices work for them. So why is this so important? Once the precedent has been set, that it is fit and proper for even a pro-privacy company like Apple to make products that betray their users and owners. Apple itself will lose all control over how that precedent is applied. As soon as the public first came to learn of the spy phone plan, experts began investigating its technical weaknesses and the many ways it could be abused primarily within the parameters of Apple's design. And although these valiant vulnerability research efforts have produced compelling evidence, that the system is seriously flawed, they also seriously miss the point. Apple gets to decide whether or not their phones will monitor their owners' infractions for the government. But it's the government that gets to decide what constitutes an infraction and how to handle it. Now do you see the problem? For its part, Apple says in their system, in its their system in its initial version 1.0 design, has a narrow focus. It only scrutinizes photos intended to be uploaded to iCloud, although for 85% of its customers, that means every photo. And it does not scrutinize them beyond a single comparison against a database of specific examples of previously identified child sexual abuse materials, or CSAM. If you're an enterprising pedophile with a basement full of CSAM-tainted iPhones, Apple welcomes you to entirely exempt yourself from these scans by simply flipping the Disable iCloud Photos switch, a bypass which reveals that this system was never designed to protect children, as they would have you believe, but rather to protect their brand. As long as you keep that material off their servers and so keep Apple out of the headlines, 
Apple doesn't care. So what happens when in a few years at the latest, a politician points out and in order to that in order to protect the children, bills are going to be passed in the legislature to prohibit this disable bypass, effectively compelling Apple to scan photos that aren't backed up to iCloud. What then? He goes through a list of things that could happen once that door is open. And the key is we probably shouldn't let that door swing open in the first place. This is from Edward Snowden's Substack, the all-seeing eye in your iPhone. Just one more thing I guess we should be aware of. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Hello, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down. Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list, and they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hey, once again, we welcome you back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Joel S. Hirschhorn uh, to the program to talk a little bit about uh, vaccines. Welcome, doctor. Okay, I'm I'm actually a PhD, not an MD, but uh, I started out as a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I directed a medical research program uh, between the 
medical school and the College of Engineering and uh, moved on to the U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment, uh, where I directed a lot of high-level studies uh, related to health issues. And I testified at 50 times at Senate and House hearings as a trusted expert, okay, and moved on to National Governors Association. Again, a lot of studies related to health, decades of working on health issues. Uh, since I retired, I'm an executive volunteer at uh, a major hospital, uh, Hopkins Hospital. And, uh, and uh, since uh, early 2020, I've been working on pandemic issues. And what triggered me to get involved um, was I was seeing all this data coming out uh, initially from Dr. Zelenko in New York, who's a great innovative doctor who wrote the forward for my book. And all this data was showing me <laughs> we had a solution. We had a cure for COVID-19. And yet the government <laughs> was not promoting this. And not only that, the government started to block the wide use of generics like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which, again, countless studies have shown really work effectively. They're safe, they're cheap, and, of course, they're competition to the drug industry's trillion-dollar business of making COVID vaccines. So we, we live in an insane world. Uh, the strategy that Fauci pushed initially in 2020 was wait for the vaccine strategy, and in the meantime, he was willing to sacrifice the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who are not getting access to these treatment, what we call early treatment protocols. And then we found out not only do these drugs, the generics, uh, COVID-19 in a few days, if they're given early, but they also act as prophylactic. That is, if you take ivermectin particularly, it's very popular, popular, by the way, among physicians. I checked this yesterday. It's amazing how many physicians are taking a low dose of ivermectin, usually one tablet a week, and uh, just to as a preventive, okay? That is a real alternative to vaccines, which I have very negative views about and we can talk about. Uh, my latest article that just went up the other night uh, was the craziness, the insanity of FDA approving the Pfizer COVID vaccine. And I can explain why this was an insane decision. It was a political decision, not a, a good medical decision. Well, let's let's dive right in there because that that has emboldened. I mean, there was a lot of push before. There was a, there was a tremendous amount of um, arm twisting, if you will. Take the shot, get the shot, get the shot. And then uh, with the FDA yes, approval, yes. now it's like, okay, you have no excuses. As if that was the only reason that people were were hesitant to to take the shot. Let's let's talk about this this approval of Pfizer's vaccine. What do you want people to know about uh, the the CD or the FDA's decision to to approve this? Does it really change anything about the vaccine? It doesn't change. Well, it, it, it'll it'll promote more mandates to use the vaccine. Okay, that's the bad news. And the bad news also, and it's in my article. When you look into what FDA did. Here's an example. There is a standard procedure for FDA approving new vaccines. One of the procedures used historically 
is that there's an advisory committee of physicians, okay, that's supposed to advise FDA whether they should approve a vaccine. Well, guess what in this Pfizer case? FDA did not use the advisory committee. What does that tell me? It tells me they didn't want medical advice, okay, somebody looking over their shoulder and looking at the data. This was a political decision. And the other thing I point out in my article is a long list of things that FDA told Pfizer they would have years to do more studies. Interesting. A study on whether vaccines would be their vaccine would be safe for pregnant women. They have a few years to do that study. And they have a few years to do other studies. Well, <laughs> that's why if we look historically at how vaccines get approved by FDA, it normally takes a number of years, two, three, four years even, okay? Vaccine maker has to do a lot of research, a lot of studies to prove the short and long-term safety of their vaccine. That's not happening in this case, okay? And then the other thing is more and more data keeps coming in. Uh, I point out in my article, a, a good look at the data shows that just in the United States, mind you, probably 20,000 people have died after taking the Pfizer vaccine, okay? It's the same thing around the world, okay? Lots of deaths, lots of uh, ill health effects from the Pfizer vaccine. So are these va- is, none of these COVID vaccines are safe, in my opinion, okay? Uh, there's a piece of data that I, I, I put in one of my articles. If you look worldwide, probably 100,000 people have died from the vaccines. I want So now the issue is, it's a tough issue for ordinary people. Do I take a vaccine because the government says I should in order to prevent getting COVID-19? Or should I look at the data and look at the good information and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of risk in taking the vaccine. Now, some people, maybe the risk is okay because they're elderly. I think the cutoff is about age 70. Above age 70, for certain people with comorbidities, you can argue, well, maybe the risk-benefit ratio is okay and take the vaccine. But now we have all of this data on, on breakthrough infections. I'm just looking at new data over the last couple of days. It's amazing. Uh, 60% of the in Israel, which is doing great work, highly vaccinated country, okay, 60% of the hospitalized people for COVID had been vaccinated, okay? And we're seeing that kind of number pretty much everywhere, whether you can trust the data. Uh, I think it's happening everywhere, including the United States, because what's happening, we've learned now, why are they pushing booster shots, okay? They're pushing promoting booster shots because all the data is showing because of the breakthrough infections of vaccinated people that the antibodies that that these vaccines supposedly create in the body don't last that long. They fade, okay? And they fade so that within maybe four, five, six months, and there's been testing done saying that all these antibodies from the vaccines are gone. So now people are getting reinfected And the other thing about these vaccines, I always want to emphasize, they do not kill the virus, okay? They do not kill the virus. And they do not stop transmission. So people who get vaccinated can still have a lot of virus in their body. They can accumulate new virus. 
and they are transmitting the virus to other people, whether they're vaccinated or not, okay? So these are interesting vaccines. There, I wrote another article recently about two of the world's greatest virologists, uh, a French virologist who had won a Nobel Prize, mind you, and a Belgian uh, virologist. And what do they say? They've said exactly what Peter McCullough, a great doctor in Texas, has said, and many others. Stop the vaccination program. There is no good news coming from, from continuing the vaccination program. The, these two virologists, which are great people, credentialed people, experts, true experts, you can trust. And they've said that these, these vaccines are creating the variants, okay? That's very important. Why, why? And once you solve, you know, the Delta variant, there'll just be another variant that they'll be talking about. Fascinating. So that's my negative view. <laughs> no, that's I. You know, you you have hit on a whole bunch of the the talking points that uh, that I was hoping to cover. We're we're coming up on our break. We got a break away here in about okay. thirty seconds. But again, we're talking with Dr. Joel Hirshhorn, and I want to come back to the idea that uh, you know these these breakthrough infections. I mean, if a person was hesitant to get the vaccine before. Some of this data that you just mentioned, I, I think, would add fuel to the fire and, and give them a, yes. a very firm reason. See, if, 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 it's this, if this means I'm signing up for a lifetime of boosters or, or other mandated you know, right. uh, shots, maybe I don't really want to, to get started down that road. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of very, uh, very interesting data that's starting to come forward. One thing that I am not hearing, though. And, and I'm, I mean, the only place I'm hearing this is from dissenting voices like your own, as well as uh, like Dr. McCullough that you talked about. We don't hear much about natural immunity. Why is that oh, subject yes. off the table? It, that's, it's such a good point, Brian. You know, people who do get infected uh, by COVID-19 virus, the vast majority, 98, 99%, have no serious health effects. But they actually have one positive a result of being infected at some point in their lives. And that is they get what we call natural immunity. And now all this research has come out, and particularly a paper just published, I was reading the other day from Israel, they actually have proved, okay, through their studies and research, that natural immunity that you get from being infected at some point, the natural immunity is better than the artificial or what we call vaccine immunity. Now, this is an, that's why the vaccine immunity fades in, let's say, six months or less. The natural immunity is created in your body. Your immune system has all kinds of T cells and B cells and all these wonderful things that go on. And that natural immunity turns out is more protective than the vaccine immunity. Not more protective in two ways. It's not going to fade away like the artificial vaccine immunity. It stays with you typically for a lifetime and sort of reignites. It's an interesting natural immunity. It, 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 it stays in your body in such a way that when new viruses come in, it reactivates. That's what natural immunity is all about. Plus, you can do things to always boost your natural immunity. I take a supplement protocol mix, vitamins and supplements twice a day. And I've been vaccinated early on. And so there are things you can do, but the government does not recognize, this is the important political point, the government does not recognize that probably half the American population has natural immunity. If you have natural immunity, why would you take a vaccine? 
In fact, there's a lot of good research, Brian, that shows that when you add this vaccine immunity on top of natural immunity, that screws up your immune system. So now you're in deep trouble. And and so the government is not recognizing natural immunity. You know, with all these mandates, you can't get a card to show. Yeah, you could be tested, by the way, and interesting, uh, the government is not promoting the kind of testing that you could prove that you have natural immunity because there are tests that you could do. So, yeah, the government is not giving you credit for natural immunity. All of these companies, colleges and schools, they want you to prove vaccination. They don't want to talk about the fact that you don't need the vaccine if you have natural immunity. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, it's hard to stay ahead of the data, Brian, but there's so much data out there. I wrote a whole long article recently about all the blood problems from these vaccines, blood clots, okay, brain bleeds, okay, strokes. A great doctor in Canada, <laughs> Dr. Hoff, he does, he has the creativity, he's, he's following the research, so he does a blood test. He, he gives out 900 shots of the Moderna vaccine, okay? And then he does a blood test on his patients. It's called the D-dimer test. Been around a long time. And it turns out that the D-dimer test tests the, whether you have blood clots in your body. 64%, 64% of his patients who had gotten the Moderna shot had serious blood clots, Okay. These are microscopic blood clots. They do not show up on any kind of scan, okay? No MRI, no X-ray, none of that. The D-dimer test is one of the few tests that you can do to show you have microscopic. Well, I've seen the slides from pathologists. Your body can be filled with these microscopic blood clots. We don't know the long-term effects, but when the Canadian doctor did this, he had patients already having serious health problems because of the blood clots. So the more you look at things, and this is getting into, again, that course, the the benefit ratio, you know, the risk-benefit ratio, there are so much data out there. And and one of the challenges that, that I'm taking on is trying to get better information to the public by doing podcasts like yours, by publishing articles several a month now, uh, trying to get good information because why is all this insanity going on? Because big media is suppressing all the good information. That, well, it's bad about vaccines. It's good about alternatives. Again, I want to emphasize, I went through yesterday and I, I, I belong to a couple of sort of medical groups and I was checking what people were saying in their messages. I was amazed at how many doctors are taking ivermectin as a prophylactic as an alternative to taking the vaccine. You know, they're taking one tablet a week, typically, most most of these people, doctors, and and that's a prophylactic. We know that it, from studies all over the world, studies recently published also show ivermectin really works. It's safe. By the way, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, fully approved by the FDA, okay? Most of these vaccines now... Only the Pfizer has been approved, but I guess the other ones will get approval. But the sort of political approvals, I want to emphasize that. 
They're not good medical approvals. Peter McCullough from Texas has made this great point all along. If we had seen all of this data on deaths related to vaccines, which is in the official CDC database, VAERS, okay, in the past, that kind of data, FDA would have taken the vaccines off the market. They took a vaccine off the market several, some years ago when just a few hundred people had died. A few hundred. This is the same database. Now we have thousands and thousands of people dying, but the vaccine is not taken out of the market. So there's no consistency in what FDA has done because FDA has become basically a political agency more than more than a medical agency it's not safeguarding public health it's safeguarding the political decisions of the powerful and big media is assisting this because they give good news about fda and they suppress all the sort of bad news about the vaccines particularly the pfizer vaccine it has almost worse data than than the other vaccines being used interesting well, I, I appreciate you saying everything that you just said. I can't for the life of me figure why there is such intense pressure to get everyone vaccinated. Um, I mean, look, some people, like you pointed out, it could make sense. If you are above a certain age, if you have comorbidities, absolutely, you may want to consider doing this. But it, it just seems like the the political goal is to get everybody vaccinated. It is a political goal. And the pressure, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I'm 55 years old, and I've been paying close attention for the last 25 years, and I've never seen anything that approaches this. Because it's never happened before in the history of medicine that something like this has gone on, okay? And just on the positive side, I'm with, in my book, I talk about up to 80% of COVID-19 infections. McCullough says 85% of COVID infections can be cured with these treatment protocols based on various generics. Okay. Now we have several now. And I was listening the other day, uh, there's a great doctor, George Farid uh, and Brian and Tyson in California. I think they've treated 6,000 or 7,000 people with these treatment protocols. Not one has died. Not one has gone to the hospital. So when you look at the official CDC data is over, they say, over 600,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 infection. Well, you can quibble about the accuracy of the data, but most of those could have been saved, over 500,000. Okay, we're down to our final minute here. Uh, Dr. Hirshhorn, where can people go for more information? Your book, Pandemic Blunder, would be a good start. Where else would you point them? Well, there's some great websites. I, you know, I, I publish on uh, on a couple of websites now, but I want to promote two websites for people to see good information about the bad effects of the vaccines. One is called 1000covidstories.com, the number 1000covidstories.com. And the other one is healthimpactnews.com. These are two great websites to see the truth about the bad effects of vaccines. I'm publishing on a bunch of my articles go up now on WND.com. Thanks again, Dr. Hirshhorn, uh, for your time with us. I, I'm going to uh, cut him loose at this point and want to shift gears to uh, to another topic. And this is one that uh, maybe you're not in college, okay? Maybe college is long behind. And uh, there are a lot of young people, though, who are trying to map out 
where they're going to go, what the future is supposed to hold for them. And you have to ask yourself, what would prompt a very promising young student, for instance, to give up her seat in a prestigious law school just a week before orientation? Well, there's a writer by the name of Brett Cooper writing for the Foundation for Economic Education who describes how she gave up her seat in law school one week before orientation after sitting down, crunching the numbers and realizing that it's just not worth the financial cost. And in fact, the government is partly to blame for this. Kind of a cautionary tale. Brett Cooper says, for the past year, my sights had been set on law school. I spent my time studying for the LSAT, polishing personal statements, graduating from UCLA with an attractive transcript, and she says it all paid off when I committed to my dream JD program this spring. But only a week before orientation began, she says I made the decision to give up my seat. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that while the financial cost of legal education continues to increase, the value and payout of the degree has plummeted and the statistics are staggering. In fact, she says, upon entering the workforce, fewer than one in four law students believe their degree is worth the financial cost. More than 95% of these students take out loans for their education. On average, they graduate with $150,000 in debt. However, as the median salary for recent law graduates is $75,000 a year in the private sector and only $55,000 in the public sector, many of these hopeful and ambitious students are unable to secure the high-paying jobs that a law degree once promised. Now, in the past, being able to comfortably pay off student loans, that was a given for law students. However, the median starting salary for a private sector lawyer, that stayed stagnant. In fact, it's even begun to decrease as there's an influx of lawyers and not enough demand for legal work, leaving many recent law school graduates unable to make their loan payments. In short... For most students, law school is no longer a ticket to financial stability. In fact, for many, it's just not worth the cost. Now, that may lead you to wonder, so what exactly is driving this? Well, government intervention in the form of subsidized loans has degraded the return on investment for most graduate-level degrees, and that includes law school. In 2005, Congress created the Higher, Bene- Higher Education uh, Reconciliation Act, rather, which created the PLUS program for graduate students and set no limit on the amount of tuition money that they could borrow. This, in addition to the Federal Reserve forcing interest rates to near zero and the growing prospect of loan forgiveness, has made federal loans an irresistible option for incoming law students. Brett Cooper says the, in- the unintended consequence of this seemingly generous policy was that it gave academic institutions the ability to hike the cost of their programs without sacrificing the number of students willing and suddenly able to pay the price. Considering that the average student takes out $150,000 in loans, these academic institutions have seemingly struck gold. Supporting this, the Wall Street Journal noted that since universities receive tuition up front, they've benefited from the free-flowing federal loan money and have an economic incentive to expand graduate degree programs and face no consequences if students can't afford to pay the federal loans after they leave. However, the increase in tuition hasn't deterred the number of students applying. In fact, those limitless loans have only caused a surge. Nice little lesson there in incentives. She says the Law School Admissions Council reported the number of applicants in the 2020-2021 academic year was 35% higher than the previous year. And that was a year which had already seen an increase of 
So this growth is making the application process increasingly competitive. It's giving law schools the opportunity to expand their programs and hike their tuitions. As a result, the student loan bubble continues to grow. More and more hopeful students are being churned into the market with both looming debt and lower salaries, as the demand for lawyers hasn't increased with that new burgeoning supply. So what we're seeing here is the cost of interventionism. And I love that she cites Henry Hazlitt from his Economics in One Lesson book, where he wrote that the bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. By the way, almost 200 years ago, a Frenchman by the name of Frederick Bastiat wrote about the very same thing in an essay titled That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen. So you want to be the good economist. You want to be the one who looks not only at what what exactly is this supposed to accomplish, but what else might it affect that we wouldn't catch you know, immediately upon uh, that stated goal. Now, Brett Cooper says, as evidenced by the current broken system of graduate education, it's clear that legislators responsible for federal student loan programs failed to have foresight about the possible consequences of interfering in higher education's market. Hoping to make the attainment of graduate degrees more accessible, the government stepped in with limitless federal loans. However, with so many students now able to enroll in these programs, she says the job market just can't keep up. In the past 10 years, there have been over 15 civil lawsuits filed against law schools for allegedly falsifying their post-graduation employment rates. The students at these mostly mid-tier universities took out loans believing they would have comfortable salaries upon gaining their degree. However, most of them have been left unemployed, working outside of law, or making less than what they were led to expect. Meanwhile, the $37 billion owed by students annually continues to expand, putting more people further in debt while costing taxpayers more money each year. Now, this is far from what the government had hoped to achieve. Economist Ludwig von Mises explained this phenomenon well in Human Action. Quote, All varieties of interference with the market phenomena not only fail to achieve the ends aimed at by their authors and supporters, but bring about a state of affairs which is less desirable than the previous state of affairs which they were designed to alter. End quote. Brett Cooper says that's a lesson the government should keep in mind as alumni continue to cry for government bails, bailouts and loan forgiveness. I believe President Biden's been pretty uh, generous with the loan forgiveness here lately. So continually, continuing rather to financially intervene in graduate education is only going to deepen the crisis. And that's true for students as well as unwitting taxpayers. She says, well, I worked hard to get into law school and I don't regret my efforts. The statistics I uncovered were a wake up call. What once was a promise of a lucrative career is now a promise of debt and a degree that is steadily devaluing. No, thanks. At a time when less than 25% of law students believe their financial investment paid off, she says, I think I'll be happy to be putting my energy and resources elsewhere. Kind of an interesting take. You know, I, I have to wonder, too. I know the federal government got behind this, and it was with its backing that these student loans became very, very available. But it just seems like the banks have paid into this, too. And I don't want to sound like I'm on an anti-bank rant here. Just who else, you know made it easy for students to take on backbreaking amounts of unforgivable debt. Now, notwithstanding the president saying, okay, well, we're going to forgive this and we'll forgive, you know, a few, a few billion here and tens of billions there. Typically, though, you don't get 
to walk away from student loan debt. It's treated kind of the same way as if uh, you had robbed a bank and you had the money. You don't. Uh, you still have to pay it back. It's not something that's going to be forgiven. Don't get me wrong. I, I really believe that education is a good thing. But I think at some point it appears that uh, our systems of education, particularly higher education, have instead become kind of a portal to entry into the job market. And that degree, which used to say, well, this is a person who has marketable skills and this is a person who can provide value to an organization or value to a community through what they've learned. Really, all it's saying is, okay, they've completed whatever the necessary requirements were to to show that uh, they can start something and finish it. The degree is worth less and less all the time. And if you think they're worth a lot less now, wow, wait till you see what happens when, you know, Community college is made absolutely free. There's some very interesting bills, spending bills, that have been proposed, and none of them deal with the real problem, which is a huge spending problem on the part of our, you know, elected politicians. Yep, some things have got to change. I like how Brett Cooper approached it. I think she's a smart girl for doing so. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders, and this is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.